The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We're looking at 1 Thessalonians 2 today, so if either off the board or in your copy, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, read part of it. When uh, Reverend McCutcheon asked me to um, uh, fill the pulpit today, he told me about the series that you were having and so on, and this was to be the time when I focused on uh, the uh, role of pastor and elders in relation to the congregation and so on, and he told me that uh, I would be able to kind of get off my chest everything that I'd wanted to tell my congregations in the past and so on. But I already told them, uh, so I don't have to do a psychological dump job on you. Um, We'll just look at the text and we'll try to uh, uh, filter it out uh, for our theme today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers." For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers." Now, we'll stop our reading there. Um, We take in the rest of the chapter, but uh, that will get the bulk of it in front of us. There was a time when Sherlock Holmes was talking with his friend Watson, and he was examining a man's pipe, smoking pipe. And uh, he said, the owner is obviously a muscular man, left-handed, with an excellent set of teeth, careless in his habits, and with no need to practice economy. Now, that's pretty good to look at a man's pipe and to be able to tell all that about him. And Watson was wondering about that. And Holmes said, well, if you look at some of the the tobacco leftovers in here, this is a mixture uh, that is far more expensive than what would be really a good smoke in itself. So this man uh, probably is wealthy, has no need to to, uh, cut back on the quality of his tobacco. He just gets the 
the highest level he can get. Uh, and not only that, he's left-handed because uh, if you look at the side of the pipe, it's charred. And so he doesn't light it with a match, but 19th century that it was. He lights it at gas jets or gas lights, and that's why it's charred on the right side, so he's left-handed. And the fact that the pipe stem and the amber of it is broken means that he's probably a fairly muscular man. At least he has a good set of teeth in order to do that. Well, you can read a lot off of something like that. Uh, and you can do that with 1 Thessalonians 2, because of what you see here, uh, you can see what Paul was facing, and because of what he says here, you know that he's trying to defend himself and his ministry, and that that's important to him. Uh, he needs to defend himself against the charges of being another hit-and-run, money-grubbing, people-manipulating, traveling teacher of which there were scads in the first century A.D., and so he has to defend himself from that, and, and in the process, we read off from this what he says and what he indicates would be the characteristics of a genuine ministry of the Word. And so as we look today at the role of pastor and elders in a congregation, that's what we want to do. How do you sniff out a genuine ministry? How can you tell you've got the real thing? We look at 1 Thessalonians 2 and try to read it off from that. Uh, now, this is rather pedantic. I couldn't get these uh, points summed up in neat, nifty, little one-word uh, uh, summaries and so on. So, uh, first of all, you can tell a genuine ministry by the activity that dominates ministry. The activity that dominates ministry. Verses 1 and 2. You know, brothers, our coming to you is not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully entreated at, treated at Philippi, as you know... We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. There's the activity that dominates me, to declare to you the gospel of God, even in the midst of much conflict. And you notice in verse 8 and also in verse 9, Paul again refers to the gospel of God. And in verse 9, the same is here, proclaiming the gospel of God. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. That's what Paul was focused on. That was the be-all and end-all, you might say, of his ministry. Uh, that's, that's, what, uh, that's what drove him and so on. That was the concentration of it all. Now, it's very easy to say we proclaim to you the gospel of God, but what on earth is the gospel of God? Well, if you cheat a little bit and you crawl back up into uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and to verses 9 and 10, you get a pretty good summary of what the gospel of God is. Uh, there, it's, uh, Paul's talking about the impact that the gospel had upon the Thessalonians, but as he describes that impact, he also gives a pretty good summary of what the gospel is. So what is the gospel of God? Well, it can be summed up in those words in verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10, uh, Jesus who delivers us. Now, what's he deliver us from? Well, chapter 1, verse 9, he delivers us from falsehood. We hear, and others have heard, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Jesus delivers us from falsehood. And sometimes that's what you have to do when, when you come to Christ. You don't, you don't start people necessarily with Christ. Sometimes you have to take them back and ask them what kind of God they believe in that exists. Because people have graven images of God in their mind, 
They think God is like Santa, or they think that God is some fuzzy heavenly being who's supposed to keep bad things from happening to American people or something like that. There are all sorts of weird ideas God has, uh, people have about God, and, and sometimes you have to start there. And Jesus delivers us from falsehood. He delivers us also from hopelessness. To turn from idols and to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. Jesus is coming again. He delivers us from hopelessness. History is going somewhere. We look forward to Jesus coming when His coming will begin to wrap up the end of history as we know it, and so on. Some people don't know that. They go out of their back door in the morning to get into their car to go to work, and they have no ghost of an idea where history's going. They have no idea. But Jesus delivers us from hopelessness. We wait for His Son from heaven. And He delivers us from death. Jesus, we wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection guarantees ours. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then we too at His coming will be raised from the dead. And He delivers from death. Not, not just that that. Upon death, we are absent from the body and present with the Lord. But the full redemption package that comes at Jesus' second coming, when our bodies are raised and we have our full persons, both our soul and our resurrection body, completely delivered. Jesus delivers from death, and then Jesus delivers us from wrath. We wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come, or literally from the wrath that is coming. It's on its way. Well, that speaks of God's judgment against sinful men and women. But Jesus delivers us from that because he, in the cross, has soaked up that wrath and that judgment of God. And therefore, I'm set free from it. Now, that's the gospel of God. And Paul says, that's what we preached to you. That was our main concern. Now, I was interested to read about a, a cellist who was 90 years old. And uh, he was still practicing four and five hours a day. And someone asked him, sort of, look, you're 90 years old. You know, you, not going to last much longer, I think, was the import. You're 90 years old and you're still practicing four or five. Why not just give it up? He said, oh, because I think I'm making some progress. <laughs> well, that, that's it. Isn't it? But, but that's, that was what consumed him. He was a cellist and, he, and that was his whole focus. That was his concentration. That was his preoccupation. And when you see among your ministers and your elders that the gospel of God is their focus, it's their preoccupation, it's the very center of what they bring to you, then you know you have a genuine ministry. Now secondly, you know you've got a genuine ministry by by the control that governs ministry. Verses 3 and 4, the control that governs ministry. Uh, Paul here in verse 3 and so on is saying, we, don't, we didn't have any shady or shifty techniques that we, ru- we used on you people. 
Uh, and we didn't do that because we're men who are under scrutiny, and that scrutiny controls us. What scrutiny? Verse 4, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We're under God's floodlight. We're accountable to Him. That's what governs our ministry, Paul's saying. Now, that's not always what governs stuff in the church. There's a lot of material out there. Some of it's good, you know, and so on. Uh, but but uh, that, that tells you how you can grow your church. And sometimes you grow your church by structuring it so it will most please people. I got to watch that. Now, please understand, don't, don't take that to seed. I don't, I don't mean that you never give people what they care about and like, and that sort of thing. I mean, if you're having a birthday party for kids and so on, you, you, don't, you don't serve them stewed okra. Uh, they want ice cream and cake. You give them what they want. So, you know, please understand, I'm trying to be an evangelical sourpuss or something, but, but, but there are... There are schemes of people uh, of how you grow a church and so on, and, and you basically make it, you pitch it on what will please the most people and what people want. No, 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 no. Paul, Paul says we can't operate that way. We can't be concerned with pleasing man, man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now, the point here, if that governs the ministry of pastors and elders, that's going to be difficult and costly. That may not be what people always like. Let me help you with some scenarios here. Maybe there's a a young man in a congregation. He's a confessing member of the church. He's confessed his faith. He's joined the church. He's 19, 20 years old. And let's say, just be general, he, he has committed some wrong or some sin that is public. People outside the church know about it. People inside the church know about it. The pastor and elders have to deal with that. They have to seek to call him to repentance. They have to seek to rect- see if, if, if he'll conform, uh, uh, repent, and, and uh, so on. Uh, and, and we're through that process. Now, in the process of that, because it was something that was known outside and inside the church, it could be, not always, but it could be that the session decides we need to make an announcement of this to the congregation so that they know that we've dealt with it and it hasn't been ignored and so on. And, and also perhaps to stop any extra gossip that needs to be going around. They may decide to do that. You may not like that. There may be people inside the church that don't like that. They may pay pay. pay, pay they may pay a price for, for making that decision. Or here's another scenario. Here's a husband and a father. And uh, he's living in unfaithfulness to his wife. Uh, gone off with, with someone else. And uh, the pastor and, and, and session elders have to confront him about that. Call him to repentance. Call him to... Uh, perhaps receive counsel and prayers and try to seek to restore and reconcile the marriage, but, but mainly to repent of the wrong and the, and the violation of his marital vows. And he may say, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to go there. I'm sorry. It's my life. I'm going to live it the way I want. And because that's the consistent, persistent response, then, then finally the, the session excommunicates him 
from his membership in the church. They have to do that. Oh, but there are people inside the church and outside the church that may not like that. They may say, oh, I don't see what, what, what he does in his private life as any business of the elders of the church, etc. Well, he did make a profession of faith in Christ, didn't he? To live as becomes a follower of Christ, you hold him to his promises. But there are people inside and outside the church that may not like that. And the church may lose members because of that, because some people will be miffed about it. They'll be miffed because pastors and elders are guided by Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 6 and 2 Thessalonians 3 and Hebrews 13 rather than perhaps what pleases man. So this can be a hard thing to do. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. But if you have leadership that is willing to do the hard stuff, that thinks more of God's words than people's opinion, then you have a genuine ministry. Now, third, you also have a genuine ministry by the chemistry that infects ministry. Sorry, I don't know any better way to put it. The chemistry that infects ministry. Now there we're looking at verses 5 to 8 and 11 to 12 and 17 to 20. And I won't take you through all of that, but I'll try to give you a taste of it. What do we mean? Well, notice the, notice the pictures that Paul uses here of his relationship to the Thessalonians. You notice in verse 7, he has a picture of a nursing mother. We were gentle among you. He says, we weren't trying to rip you off and so on. We weren't making demands on you. We were like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Then you notice in verses 11 and 12, he gives a picture of an encouraging father. You know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, and so on, like an encouraging father. And then in verse 17, he talks about a time when they were separated from the Thessalonians, and he, he says something like the ESV has, uh, we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time. That verb torn away, is a, the Greek word is, we were orphaned from you. It's as if we're family, and we belong together. But when we weren't with you, we were orphaned from you. And so on. There's, there's a certain affection. There's a, there, there's a, there's a chemistry uh, going on here. You can see the process in verse 8. You notice what he says there. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. That happens. You may find it hard to believe, maybe, I don't know, but but, but it really does happen in a congregation that over time, there's a certain chemistry that takes place of a love and affection and a bond that binds pastors and elders to the people and so on. That's what's here. Now, that's not always the case. <laughs> I remember a, a woman, a former student really, I, who was uh, talking to me once about her, her pastor. Now, this woman, let me, let me qualify this. She was not, she, she was not a whiner. Uh, she was not immature. She was very biblically grounded and so on. She was just telling me 
about her pastor, and she said this, I don't think he likes us. Now, uh, that's sad, you know. Uh, Well, you wouldn't find that with Paul here, would you? We were ready to share with you also our own selves because you'd become very dear to us. That can be seen and, and felt. Now, we have to make some qualifications here about what I've called this chemistry that infects ministry and so on. It doesn't necessarily have to be a certain personality of minister or, or of elders for this to take place. You have to realize that among ministers there are all kinds of animals. I don't know if you realize that, but some are very naturally warm and personable. Some are more reserved and cautious. You have all sorts of personalities among ministers and elders. And of course, uh, in the history of the church, sometimes you'll hear people, I know this because I've had been in places where there have been former pastors who who uh, are remembered and so on and that sort of thing. But you'll have someone say, "Ah, oh, there was nobody like Pastor. What's his face? You know, every he, he's always asking how you were doing. He sent me a birthday card every year. He not only sent me birthday cards, he sent everybody in church a birthday card for their birthday. And he always seemed to be there when you need him. Too bad he had to leave. He went bankrupt trying to buy postage for birthday cards." <laughs> That sort of thing. You know, there's always somebody that's warmer and fuzzier than you are. Now, we're not talking about warm fuzzies necessarily here. They're just saying, you know, a minister can't be everything that everyone wants him to be. Um, and and uh, whether your minister or your elders smother you or whether they seem to be Uh, a bit more removed, you can always nevertheless spot a genuine ministry when there's a certain chemistry that you sense is operating. When you realize that whatever their personality type may be, there is a real genuine care. And they regard you as very dear to them. Now, I found this to be true in my own past ministry. Sometimes when we weren't in a teaching in the seminary, we were in pastorates off and on. That's one of the problems of, of uh, being immature. You never know what you want to do when you grow up, so you keep switching back and forth. And, and we were in several pastorates as well. And I remember, uh, especially in my latter pastorates, that, that uh, I didn't have as much time to spend in the homes of my people, getting to know them as well as I would like because the demands of the preaching and teaching load meant that I needed time for study more so than, than normal, perhaps. Um, of course, there are always those in the church, people in the church, whom you wish were in other churches, um, and uh, we were usually successful in bringing that about. Uh, but having said all of that, made all those qualifications, let there be a sorrow Let someone receive a bum diagnosis that they didn't want to hear. Uh, Let there be a heartache. Let there be a huge disappointment, whatever it would be. And you knew that these people mattered to you because they were the ones that you held up in prayer. And it mattered to you whether they stood or fell in their trials.
because you see there's a certain chemistry that infects ministry. And when that's there, you know you've got the real thing. Now, fourthly, you can also, I'm briefly here, you can tell a genuine ministry by the godliness that authenticates ministry. Verses uh, 9 and 10, the godliness that authenticates ministry. You notice in verse 9, Paul speaks of hard work or his labor and toil. The reason he does that is because he he was not allowing the Thessalonians to support him. He didn't want people to say, oh, he's just trying to milk the Thessalonians. So by his own work in tent making and leather uh, work, Paul was supporting himself there in Thessalonica when he was there in order that he could hold off that criticism uh, that that he was just trying to, to make a fast buck with them and, and, and so on. So he, he was working hard with them that we might proclaim to you, the, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God, the last of verse 9, then notice verse 10, you are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. So there you have, we were proclaiming to you the gospel of God, verse 9, and our conduct was holy and righteous and blameless. Our life was above reproach. There was the gospel proclamation, verse 9, and there was the gospel life, verse 10, and they meshed together. There was no conflict between them. Then you know you've got a genuine ministry. You can tell if that's out of sync, you know. Back in 1816, in uh, the New England states, the northeastern part of the country, Uh, there was a 20-inch snowfall. Some flakes were reputed to have been two inches across. Now, there's a reason for this that we don't need to go into, etc. You say, well, big deal, as those people live up in New England, that's what they get for living there, 20-inch snowfalls. But this was on June 6th. And and, uh, it snowed also in July and August of that year. Now, something's wrong when that happens. When you get a 20-inch snowfall in, 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 say, Vermont in June 6th, something's wrong, and there, there was something wrong. Uh, but, but if life, gospel life, doesn't mesh up with gospel proclamation, you can tell they're out of sync. But where they are, you've got a genuine ministry. Now, fifthly... Uh, you, you see one more mark of a genuine ministry by the secret power at work in ministry. You can tell you've got a genuine ministry by the secret power at work in ministry. Do you notice verse 13? Paul's thanking God about how they received the word of God. Notice what he says. What we're thankful for is that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The Word of God, which is at work in you believers. The Word of God is not just a dead word that stays on the surface, etc., but you receive that Word, and it goes to work in a hidden, secret, lively way. You can actually translate that, which is energizing in you believers. It goes to work. It's a lively thing. You don't see it, but it's there like that. It's doing a work in you. Um, When I was 10 years old, I was in Sunday school one Sunday morning, and and, uh, in the kids' department, we had a, a, you know, you had 
uh, sort of all the children's departments, I mean, grades one and two, three and four, five, six, so on, uh, all met together for a few minutes before we would split and go to our classes. So there I am sitting on the back bench uh, next to a kid beside me to my left whose name was Archie Jamison. Archie was probably a couple years older than I was, and on this day he had on a green and white striped bow tie. Nice looking thing, as bow ties go. Um, and uh, all of a sudden I was looking up at him, and, and a little brown worm came out of that bow tie and came down, kind of a crinkly thing, and then it went back in. Mystery. What's going on there? And it happened again. A little brown worm extended itself and then went back in that bow tie. Well, came to find out, Archie explained the mystery. Uh, somehow behind that bow tie and so on, there was a little uh, line, a, a rubber-like line, uh, that went down there and then uh, ended up in his pocket. And on the end of that little rubber-like line, there was a little bulb like you squeeze, you know, for uh, basting your turkey, that sort of thing. That's, well, only it's very small. Uh, and so that shot air. So he had it in his pocket, and he just squeezed that thing, and the air would go through, and it pushed that little worm out of the bow tie. And when he let it go, it would go back in. I just thought it was a bow tie. But there was a hit, something hidden in there that I wasn't aware of. There was a worm, uh, sort of. Uh, now, that's the way it is with the Word of God. You may think that you're just dealing with something, well, just something on its own and plain and, and, and so on. But, but Paul says, no, 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 no. It's got a worm hidden in it, you might say. He says, you received the gospel. You received the word of God as it really is. And that word is a word that is at work in you believers. It's a hidden thing. It's secret. You don't see it, but you receive it. And it goes to work in you and on you. And, and, and because of that, uh, you may wonder sometimes whether you can hold out in your trials or in your troubles. But if you have that word that is at work in you, it's steadying you, it's fortifying you, it's building you up, and it's keeping you on your feet by God's grace. And the best gift that a pastor and elders can give to you is to let the word of God loose among you and let that be the focus of their ministry and of your hearing because if they let the word of God loose among you, that will go on working in you. Secretly and hiddenly. And so your, your word to your pastor and your elders should always be, give us the word of God and let it go on doing its work. So, you can tell a lot from a pipe, a la Sherlock Holmes. But if you look closely at a ministry, if you can find that it's a lot like the ministry in, in 1 Thessalonians 2, you can tell a lot as well. Not that you have a sensational ministry, you don't need that, but that you have a genuine ministry. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you have been very gracious to your church and you must love your church very much because you spend 
much time instructing us what it should look like and even what the ministry of your servants should look like in it. Thank you for being so clear and candid to us. Grant that here in this place, you would continue to build up the genuine ministry that is at work, and especially that the word that is central to that ministry would be building up and fortifying and steadying the saints here. We ask this for their sake. Amen.